Well, today is uh, part three of our series called Just Married, and in case you haven't been with us, uh, back in week one of the series, I gave five great questions that if you're dating, you should make sure you ask of the person that you're dating if you didn't get an opportunity to hear that message, because that was our snow day. I actually posted a video of that online. You can go and watch that. Uh, again, if, you, if you're dating, I really, really strongly encourage you to, to go and take a look at that. And then last week, as we uh, continued on in the series, I shared with you the sort of the five stages that every single relationship tends to sort of go through. That's you start out with romance, then you go into reality, resentment, rebellion, and then you have a choice. Either it's going to end up in ruin, or you're going to have reconciliation and rebuilding. Now, uh, Quick little side note, Nate brought this up to me after the, the message last week because I talked about you know, how Lisa and I hardly ever uh, fight her. We only actually fought one time in our almost 23 years of marriage now. And he said he actually had two couples when he was pastoring back in Ohio that they had grown up in households that were sort of like that, that they never saw their parents fight. And then when they got married and they started to fight, they thought that something was really wrong and they needed to like right away, like, oh, we need to get a divorce. And uh, so he, he said that, you know, maybe I should talk about that just briefly. And uh, I think that the goal is to not fight. But if you find yourself fighting, I actually did a series a couple years ago back in July of 2012 called Man Versus Wife. And the very first message in that particular series was called Fighting In or Fighting For Your Marriage. And so... Uh, I'd encourage you to jump online and, and listen to that if you're having some uh, issues with fighting and, and see how you can fight fair. All right, now, with all that said, things are going to be a little bit different here this morning. Uh, this was quite the interesting week. Many of you know Lisa and I are in the midst of selling our home and buying a new home, and so we're in the process of all that. I was in Orlando all week long at a uh, conference, the 11th uh, consecutive time I've been able to go down to the Exponential Church Conference that's there in Orlando, 5,000 pastors and church leaders gathering together to worship and just learn more about how do we do church and uh, a better way to more reach uh, and better reach our uh, communities. Uh, Lisa actually, last, yeah, yesterday she ended up, she's got really bad tendonitis in her foot. She can barely walk. Um, it's just, it, it's been a week. And this week I'm preaching a message that's a little bit different. I've never tried this before. And so I'm actually going to use notes here today uh, just because there's so many things that I need to be able to communicate to you. It's going to be on the screen and you're going to be drawing some pictures and stuff. And I needed to make sure that I didn't leave out any of the details because the details are going to be very important. So you're used to me not having notes, but um, I'm going to be using notes here uh, today. So with all that said, if you're ready, say I'm ready. All right. What I want to do is I want to cover what if you find yourself stuck at those later stages that we talked about last week. You find yourself in resentment, you find yourself in rebellion in your relationship, and now you're considering getting a divorce. As many of you know, the divorce rate in our country is now approaching 50%. And what's really sad about that is as of 2010, the divorce rate for born-again Christians, that is people that are truly followers of Jesus, not just people that say that they're Christians, but like truly followers of Jesus, that divorce rate is 26%. 26%. Now, as I mentioned last week, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's not. And my intention today is not to shame anyone who has gone through a divorce. But yet at the same time, I want to reiterate to you that God's intention for marriage is that it would last until death do you part. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16 we read this, I hate divorce, 
says the Lord God of Israel. I mean, if you've been through a divorce, you know exactly why God hates it. The pain that you went through emotionally and mentally, the pain that you went through relationally, possibly even physically, that breaks the heart of God. In the same way that when our relationship with God, because he's all about relationships, when our relationship with him is broken, that that breaks his heart. Well, he feels the same way about us with our relationships. And so when your relationship with your spouse gets broken, man, that just breaks his heart. Now, with that said, he does give permission. There's two different reasons why you can get a divorce. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, and he says this, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Now, Jesus was saying, man and a a woman here, you know, unless his his wife has done this, but it would be the exact same, you know, if you're a a wife and your husband has committed adultery, then you can get a divorce. That's an acceptable reason for it. But here's something else I want to point out to you. One point Jesus is speaking and he says, even if you have lust in your heart for someone, it's like you've already committed adultery. And the reason I bring that up is this. Guys, especially I want to talk to you. Pornography is running rampant in our country. And guys, if you're looking at pornography, you are committing adultery in your relationship. And your wife has the right to ask for a divorce if she finds out that you're doing that. And so you've got to cut it out. Now, ladies, same same for you. I I know guys deal with this more, but some women have gotten caught up in in pornography. And and by the way, ladies, a lot of the romance novels, from what I understand, is just basically mommy porn. Cut it out. It's adultery. Your husband has the right to ask for a divorce. What's the second reason then? Paul, speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 13, and then verse 15 says this. If your wife isn't a follower of the Lord, but is willing to stay with you, don't what? Don't don't divorce her. If your husband isn't a follower, but is willing to stay with you, don't divorce him. Verse 15. If your husband or wife isn't a follower of the Lord and decides to divorce you, then you should agree to it. You no longer are bound to that person. What this is talking about is something we talked about back in week one of the series. Unequally yoked. We are told that if you're a follower of Jesus, you should not be dating, much less marrying somebody that is not a follower of Jesus. That makes you unequally yoked. Again, if you need to understand more of why that's important, go back and listen to week one of the the series. But you can't be unequally yoked. But sometimes husband and wife end up in a situation where they're unequally yoked. How does that happen? Well, one is disobedience, that you went ahead and you dated somebody that wasn't a follower, and then you ended up marrying somebody that wasn't a follower. Now you're unequally yoked. Here's the second way that it happens. Sometimes neither one were followers when they first got married, but then either the husband becomes a follower of Jesus and the wife hasn't, or vice versa. A lot of times it's the woman. She becomes a follower and the husband isn't. And now you're unequally yoked. And what Paul is saying here is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't ask your spouse for a divorce. However, if your unbelieving spouse asks for a divorce, then you should go ahead and grant that. That makes sense? 
All right, so two reasons why it's acceptable for divorce. Everything else, God says, you need to stick it out until death do you part. Now, with all that said, let's shift gears a little bit and look a little more closely at God's original design for marriage so you can see why it's so important that you stick this out. And again, today's going to be way different than normal. So if you got your notes there, get ready, sort of shake your hand out, all right? Because you're going to be drawing some pictures. Uh, I don't have uh, like blanks for everything, so you may want to take some extra notes sort of in the side, all right? So let me, let me explain it to you this way. First of all, realize that Written language comes in two forms. Now, let me talk about English, first of all. We have a thing called the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and we go all the way through the alphabet. If you take some of those letters and you start to form them together, we call those what? We call those words. And when you read it, you understand it, and then you can pronounce it, and people will understand it as well. That's how English and most languages work. However, there are some languages, like Chinese is one, and then Hebrew, which is what the Old Testament of the Bible was written in, not only do they have letters that you can form together for words, but then every single one of those letters also has a corresponding meaning. And in fact, it has a corresponding picture that goes along with it, and that picture has meaning. So letters have meaning, and then when you put the letters together, those form words that have meaning. And then when you take each picture and put those pictures together, that has even more meaning. And that's why God's word is just so rich with meaning, because you can just casually sort of read it and get a little bit out of it, but you can study it a little bit deeper and get even more out of it. And then you can start getting into some of these pictures in the original language, and you get even more out of it. It's like an onion. You just keep peeling back different layers to it. All right. So with that said, uh, Hebrew doesn't go in the same A, B, C, D, E, F, G order uh, as English does. But let me give you the letters that are A, B, C, D in Hebrew. So uh, here they are. The first one is Aleph. There we go. Next one is Bet. Now, how would you pronounce the next one? How do you think that one's uh, pronounced? Right, you would think it was pronounced Chet, but it's actually a K sound, and it's a, a back-of-the-throat type of sound, so it's Ket. Ket, all right? And I'm not very good with my pronunciations, all right? Uh, but that, that's how that one's pronounced. And that's where we get the, uh, the K uh, is ket. And then delet. Uh, but again, each one of these letters also has a corresponding picture. So for these four, they look like this. All right, now I'm not going to explain each one of these right now because we're going to actually get into some of the other letters and what they mean, but I, I just wanted to give you sort of the idea here of what this looks like. All right, one other quick note for you. Hebrew is actually read from right to left. We read left to right. Hebrew's read from right to left. All right, so here is the word for father. Take a look at this, father. It is aleph bet, all right, aleph bet. Remember, you read it right to left. Now, let me ask you a question. What sound does the letter A make in English? There, there's two ways. What, what is it? Ah and ah, ah, right? All right, so I've been pronouncing this aleph. So in Hebrew, what, what sound does it make? Ah, right? Ah, okay? And then what sound does the letter B make? Buh. All right, now, put those two sounds together. What do you have? What is it? 
Abba, right. Abba. Some of you are familiar with this Hebrew word, Abba. It means not only father, but it's a, an intimate relationship. It's daddy, that, that God is not just a, a father that's just pointing his finger at you and he's a, a strict taskmaster. No, he's your, your daddy. It's a very intimate relationship. But remember, in Hebrew, it's not just about stringing letters together. The pictures have meaning as well. So here is father with the pictogram is what these are called. Now, a left looks like what? What does it look like? A bull or an ox, right? And it means not only ox, but it also means strength, leader, head, protector. Or you can take those words and combine them together to get even deeper meaning. And then bet, it, uh, it's hard to see this, but sort of like how, you know, uh, uh, a lot of people in, in ancient times with like astronomy and, and stuff and astrology, they, they looked at the stars in the sky and they sort of made things out of it. Well, in some ways, some of these Hebrew letters and, and pictograms are the same way. And so they used bet as the symbol of a house. And this can mean house. It can mean son, family, or being in or being with. Or again, you can take them and combine those words together. All right, so let's put this together. What is a father? Well, if we take some of these words that we uh, learn for both Aleph and Bet, and we put it together, it can mean head of the household. The, the father is the strong leader. He is the protector of the family. Is this making sense, how this works? So again, Aleph, ox, strength, leader, head, protector, or a combination. Bet, house, son, family, uh, being with, being uh, in or a combination. So that's where we get head of house, strong, leader, protector, family. Now let's look at the Hebrew for woman. And ladies, in typical fashion, you're difficult. Um, it actually takes more than one word to describe you. <laughs> Guys, we just have one word. We're a left bet, right? For women, there's three different ways that we get the word woman. The first one is this, Aleph Mim, Aleph Mim. And I gave you both the pictogram and the, uh, the Hebrew words there. Now, we already saw that Aleph means strong. That's how it's most commonly translated, strong. But what does Mim stand for? Well, it can mean water, waves, or chaos. Sounds about right, ladies. You are the chaos of the house, right? No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's not what it means. Actually, what Aleph Mem means is something that the Jews would have been very, very familiar with. After an animal was killed, the hide was then put into boiling water so that it could be cleaned. And then you could use the hide for you know, clothing or for shelter or various things. Uh, but what the Hebrews started to notice that as they had this hide submerged down in the water, that this like stuff, just this substance would rise up to the top. And so they would skim this off the top. And uh, originally they just did it because they were like trying to look down into the water at the hide. But what they noticed was, and I'm guessing that it's fat that had sort of risen to the top. What they noticed that when they skimmed it off and put it to the side, that when it dried, it became like this this tacky substance. It was like a paste almost. And that they could then take that paste and, and use it to hold two objects together. Now, what do we call that in English? Glue, right. We call it glue. But they didn't call it glue. You know what they called it? 
They called it strong water. They called it Aleph Mim, strong water. And so ladies, what are you? You are strong water. You are the glue of the family that holds things together even in the midst of chaos. You see, guys, our natural response in the the midst of chaos is to go conquer. We want to solve it. But ladies are going, whoa, 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 slow down, everybody. Just chill out, relax. You are the glue that holds things together. Now, again, Hebrew is read from right to left. I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but if you actually did it the other way and you did, uh, you did it as mim alef, how would, they, how would you pronounce that? What, does, what sound does m make? Mm, and we said alef is ah. So what would it be? Ma. Again, I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but again, we're speaking of women here. Ma, right? A mother. Now, there's another word for woman. And that is this, Aleph Mem Nun. All right, it looks like Nun, but it's actually Nun. Now, we already saw what Aleph means. We already saw what Mem means. What does Nun mean? Well, it means seed, life, offspring, heir. And so what is a woman? Well, she is strong in the midst of the chaos of childbirth. She is the one that gives life to offspring. Anybody want to take a crack at pronouncing this one? Again, go from right to left. What would it be? What is it? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Which means I agree. It also means faithful. Amen is a word that's used to describe the character of God, that God is faithful. And so women and mothers are much like God, that the love for their children is faithful. The love is unending. There's a third word then for a woman, and it is ayin shun. Ayin shun. Ayin means I, or to see, or to experience. Shun means to eat consume, teeth, destroy, cut, or it means enemy. So what does a woman have? She has an eye for the enemy. Husbands, we are the the strong protector of our family. But the, the wife, she has the eye to see the enemy. She has the eye to see things that, guys, we just don't see, called a woman's intuition. Or a lot of women have what's called the, the gift of discernment. Now, unfortunately, it's because of our our differences, guys and and gals, that this is where a lot of conflict comes, and it comes in your marriage, because guys, your wife can see things that you simply can't see, and that's why she says to you often, hey, have have you thought about this? Have you considered this? And she's not questioning you. She's just able to see things that you can't. She has an eye to see the enemy that we don't see, guys, as the protector. But oftentimes, because God created us differently, we start to butt heads on this, and we start to rub each other the wrong way. And in the midst of all that rubbing each other the wrong way, we say, oh, this just isn't working, and we want to quit on our marriage. Remember, we're both, we, we both have that aleph 
as a part of us. We are strong like an ox. Both men and women, we're strong like an ox. Guys, you're trying to protect. She's trying to be faithful. Guess what? She doesn't have a godly tongue. Guys, she's going to lash out at you and start to use what she knows that you don't know against you. She starts to say things like, told you so. I knew this was going to happen. Don't say I didn't warn you. (laughs) Yeah, she's the only honest one here. (laughs) Welcome, ma'am. I don't know who you are, but welcome and model that for everybody else. Confess. We need to confess our sins because God is faithful and just <laughs> to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Right? But again, guys, this isn't her like being mean or being rude or anything. It's just she's able to see something that you don't see. But instead of working together, you're, you're pulling further and further and further apart. Let me give you the picture, though, of what in Hebrew is husband and wife. And I think you'll start to see how we can take these two very different people, this this man and this woman, that are strong like the ox, but yet have been created differently, and how we can make it work together, and why God wants you to make it work together, why you're actually better together, and why he says that you should not separate from each other, why he hates divorce. So for this particular word, there are actually three lines and two rows. And so I got that there on your outline as sort of blanks for you. The top row represents the husband. The bottom row represents the wife. And we're going to fill them in, but we're going to fill them in out of order, okay? And I'm actually just going to give you the symbol for each one. You can draw it. I'll give you the word as well. But I just want you to see the, 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 the uh, symbolic uh, way here, the, the uh, pictogram for it. All right, so in the top middle, and again, the, the, uh, the, the top represents the husband. In the top middle is the word in Hebrew, hey. And there, there's the symbol for it. Notice it looks like a person with outstretched arms. And this means the hand of God. This means the the power of God, the the breath of God, the spirit of God. Again, you may want to just take a little bit of notes on what this one means. Again, the hand of God, the power of God, the, the breath of God, the spirit of God. Now, even though hey is spelled H-A-Y, this is actually where we get our English letter Y from. And so it's not pronounced uh, how we would do a Y in English. It's actually pronounced ah, okay? Ah, ah, okay? So that's that one. The bottom left blank. This one is so hard to pronounce that you actually can't sort of pronounce it because it represents the name of God. Look, look at this here on your screens. We have this thing here that is unpronounceable, basically. Now, I gave you four blanks right below that so you can fill it in. And I want to give you the English letters for what this means. It's Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. And I don't have time to get into it here this morning, but uh, we as as, Americans and people that speak English, 
we often have words for God. We, we call him God, we call him Father, we call him Lord, we call him Abba. But for the Jews, they didn't even believe that you should even try to utter the name of God. They believed that if you even pronounced the name of God, that you would die. The only person that could pronounce the name of God was the high priest. And also, you need to understand that Hebrew has no vowels. And so in English, as we've taken these letters of Y-H-W-H, and we, we as you know, dumb Americans, we, we try to actually pronounce this. We just put some, some uh, vowels in between. And so this is where we get Yahweh from. That's how you often hear it pronounced, Yahweh. Or the other way that it's pronounced is Jehovah or Yahovah. Okay? However, none of those are correct. Because again, it's, it's unpronounceable basically, but it's not Jehovah because again, that, that letter Y isn't actually pronounced with a, a J sound. Or is it pronounced with the Y sound? Remember what I said, the, the letter Y, how it's pronounced in Hebrew? It's a And so the H, the W, and the H again then, those are all pronounced very soft in the Hebrew language. And so literally the name of God would sound more just like <sighs> the name of God sounds like just a breath. <sighs> Try that once. Psalm 150, verse 6 says this. Let everything that has what? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's worshiping God. That's praising God. Just... All right, let's fill in the rest of husband and wife, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. The right blanks for both husband and wife are the same. It's aleph. And remember, it means strong. You're strong like the ox. And then the, the last two blanks, the upper left for the husband and the, the, the bottom middle there for the wife, they're also the same word, and it is shun. And we talked about this earlier. It means to eat, to consume, Teeth, destroy, cut, or enemy. Now, I want you to notice that in husband and wife here, two of the three are exactly the same. And so, men and women, we are basically the same. However, the top middle, remember, it stands for the, the power of God, the spirit of God. And the bottom left for women there, that represents the name of God. If you take those two out, you're left with just this. You're left with strong teeth. That's all you have in a marriage 
When you've taken the power of God, the spirit of God, and the name of God out of your relationship, you're left with strong teeth. You're going to bite one another. You're going to end up trying to destroy one another because you see each other as the strong enemy. Does this make sense? You have got to keep the name of God. You've got to keep the power of God. You've got to keep the spirit of God in your relationship. Now, here's what's ironic about all this. When you're in this situation, strong teeth, when you're yelling and screaming and fighting with one another, you're biting against one another. When you're frustrated with your spouse, you're stressed out. Guess what? You cry out to God even if you don't realize it. Because when your spouse upsets or frustrates you, here's the common noise that you make. (sighs) What are you doing in that moment? Who are you asking for help? You're asking for God even if you don't realize it. Here's what's funny. Even atheists worship God. Every single time an atheist sighs, what are they doing? They're worshiping God. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now back again to this picture of what it looks like without God in your relationship. Not only do these symbols, when they're uh, combined together, not only do they mean strong teeth, But guess what else it means? It means strong fire. And as you understand this, it starts to make Jesus' teaching about hell, it makes it much more sense now because Jesus said that in hell, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And hell is a place where the fire is never quenched. Without God in your relationship, in your marriage. It's going to feel like hell on earth. Now here's something else that's really ironic. Guess how the Hebrews pronounce this? Guess how they pronounce it when these four symbols are together by themselves? Take a wild guess. What little three-letter word that we talk about all the time around here do you think this is? Yeah, go ahead and say it. You're saying it? Yeah, this is pronounced sin. It's pronounced sin. How is sin taken care of? How is your broken marriage going to be taken care of? When you put God back in your relationship, when his spirit is in your relationship, when his power is in your relationship, when his name is a part of your relationship, guess what? Now there's strong fire, but it's called romance and it's called passion. Now there's a teeth in your relationship that is holding it together until death do you part. But without him, we're left with just sin and fire and destruction and strong teeth. 
I'm not going to take the time to read it to you here this morning. But 571 years before the time of Jesus in Ezekiel chapter 9, we read that the nation of Israel had gotten so far away from God that God ordered the, the killing of everybody who hadn't confessed their sins to him. Basically, he has six angels that he says, look, anybody that is in sin needs to be destroyed. Now, how did the angels know who to kill and who not to kill? Well, there was a seventh angel that God had sent ahead of time to mark on the forehead of anybody who had turned back in repentance to him. Guess what the mark was that they put on the forehead of these people who had the... They, they marked it with just one single solitary Hebrew letter. The Hebrew letter is Tav, and it looks like this. They put the sign of the cross on the forehead. And see what you need to realize is that God's plan for the cross has been around not just when Jesus came to the earth. This was his plan all along. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he already knew that Jesus was going to come and destroy the serpent and destroy sin. In this particular case, 571 years before the time of Jesus, he says, look, anybody that's gone, mark them with the cross. Anyone who is crying out to God, anyone who is sighing out to God, anybody who has confessed their sin will no longer face destruction for their sin. Listen, if you want to save your marriage, you have got to get your eyes on Jesus. Confess your sinfulness to him. Confess the faults that you have in your relationship to him. And then turn from your wicked ways and seek him with all of your heart. As I said last week, if a husband will do that, if a wife will do that, if each one of you will simply go and draw close to Jesus, draw close to God. What did I say with the triangle? If you'll each draw closer and closer and closer to him, it's going to draw you closer to your spouse as well. And so here's the, here's the big thought for today. Here's the point that I want to make to you. No one here today has marriage problems. Let me say that again. Nobody here today has marriage problems. Nobody has ever gone through a divorce, had marriage problems. You know what we have? We have God problems. We have sin problems. And so if we can get the God part right, every single relationship, every single marriage will prosper and it'll flourish and it will last until death do you part. And so if you're here this morning or you're listening to this podcast and right now you, your relationship feels like strong teeth, feels like you're fighting against one another, Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Before you say, I'm done, 
take at least three months for both of you to just fully commit to God. Take three months to do that. And if you'll do that, and you'll say, I'm going to seek God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And your spouse will do the exact same thing. Seek God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just, I guarantee you that your life and your marriage will be different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we've had together to to worship you in song, to worship you through the preaching and teaching of your word. And Lord, today was a little bit different. We we got into just this this sort of the the depths of of what your word looks like. And we we saw these pictograms and, and we saw why you are so uh hateful of divorce. You hate divorce because A divorce means that lies are full of sin. You hate sin. And so, Lord, I I pray that each and every one of us here today would, first of all, just stop and just (sighs) to worship you, to honor you, to respect you, to give our lives to you with with everything that we have. And Lord, there may be some that are here today that that forget about relationships, forget about marriage. They've never confessed their sins to you. They've never gone to the foot of the cross and said, Jesus, I can do nothing about my sin. I I need you. I I can't be good enough. I, I can't do enough. I'm tired, I'm I'm frustrated with life. It just doesn't seem to be working out. And I've got these things in my life that I I just don't like doing. And and the the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I'm doing. So there's some of you that are, are here today that the first step is just confess your sins to Jesus. Ask for his forgiveness. Ask for his leadership in your life. In fact, with every head bowed, I every eye closed here this morning. You have never prayed and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins and to come in to, to be the leader of your life, to take control of your life. And you're ready to surrender your full life to him, to just... If that's true of you, could you just raise your hand up nice and high so I can see it? I'll acknowledge it, and then you can put your hand right back down. Anybody here today? Anybody here today? Jesus, yes, sir, right down here. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Take control of my life. I'm tired of doing life my way. Anyone? Yes, sir, right here. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, ma'am, right here. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Take control. I'm going to ask everybody to, to pray this prayer with me just out loud. Dear Jesus, Thank you for living a perfect and sinless life. Dying on the cross so that my sins may be forgiven. Tired of doing life my way. From this moment on, I'm submitting to you. Every single moment of life, 
will simply be about Jesus, thank you for the three people that have raised their hands here this morning that have surrendered their lives to you. Help them to know that right now they are free of their sin. They're forgiven. They have a a brand new life. The old has gone and the new has come. Oh yeah, they may look the same on the outside, but inside your spirit, the, the power of God, the The awe of God lives in them. Help them now just to fully submit to you. That when temptation comes, and temptation will still come, and you give them a way out from that temptation, help them to deny the, the, the power of the flesh that says, oh, come on, just this one time, you, you like this, it's going to be pleasurable. You're going to get a lot out of it. Help them to deny that and to listen to your spirit, to listen to the power that is in them and to take the path out from that sin and that temptation that you've promised to give. And Lord, for all of us here, whether it's the the first time we prayed that prayer or, or maybe we're just being reminded of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, Help us just to live in the power of the the power of God. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here today or, or they're listening to this podcast and their marriage is struggling, help them take seriously what I said. To just take a, a three-month period to just say, you know what? Let's forget about the past and and how we treated one another and all the things that we said and all the things that we did. Let's let's just start from scratch right here and right now and just, and Lord, I know, I know, I know, I know that if people will do that, that you're going to draw the relationship together. And I've seen that so many times in marriages in the past. Marriages that looked like they were done, that there was no hope for it, that when they submitted fully to Jesus, that those marriages got turned around. And so, Lord, I I pray for that. Marriages here at Exponential, I pray for that. Marriages of, of people in other churches that are listening, I just pray for every single marriage that they would be strengthened. They'd be strengthened because two are better than one. Help them to become the partners that you've called them to be. Lord, I thank you in advance for the the stories we're going to hear in the coming months, in the coming years. People that are going to just be reminded of how their life changed and how their marriage changed as they submitted to Jesus, thank you. Thank you again that you have been a part of the plan since the very beginning and that you gave up your life so that we could have new life and new marriages. Thank you again. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.